Hello there. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, welcome to the eighth episode of Fortune 1000. We look at um, Fortune 1000 companies and um, look at how these companies were formed, the founders what the company is about and whatnot. <clears throat> so you want to see the previous episodes, this is the eighth episode of course. You want to see the previous one, you can visit fortune.techseed.org. And today we are looking at equity residential. Equity residential. Uh, not very familiar with this company. Matter of fact, it's probably the first time I've heard of them. Equity residential is the six hundred and sixty-seventh company uh, on the on the list with the market cap of twenty-four billion dollars, based in in USA. The share price is sixty-one dollars. Equity residential revenue of two billion in the last year, I think. About two point four billion in two thousand and twenty. So that's interesting revenue. Well let's see what the company is about. Equity residential based in the United States. Equity residential. Let's look at the wiki article and their website. Okay. Equity residential is um, it's a publicly traded real estate investment trust that invests in apartments. A real estate investment trust, what is that? A real estate investment trust is a company that owns and in most cases operates income producing real estates. Okay, that makes sense. They own many types of commercial real estate, including office and apartment buildings, warehouses, hospitals, shopping centers, hotels, and commercial forests. All right, so they finance real estate. That makes sense. Most countries' laws and um, REITs entitle a real estate company to pay less in corporation tax and capital gains tax. Interesting. Real estate investment trust. As of December 31st, the company owns or has investments in 310 properties consisting of 80,000, about 80,000 apartment units 
in Southern California, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., New York City, Boston, Seattle, Denver, Atlanta, Dallas, Austin. It's the fifth largest owner of apartments in the United States and the 14th largest apartment property manager in the United States. Oh, that's really interesting. That's interesting. Oh, our commitment to health and safety. About equitable station, let's see. Estate Investment Trust. Oh. Equity Apartments, where do you want to leave? Let's see. Oh, was your apartments invested in Fremont Apartments, Blue Shawn Apartments, Soma Square Apartments? Oh. Portrayer 1010. It's amazing. So, investing properties. Cool, cool, cool. Founded by Samzel in 1969. Wow. This company has been around for 53 years. Holy smokes. 53 years, headquartered in Chicago, Illinois. Property management. That's amazing. The company had its origins in equity, finance, and management company. Founded by real estate investor Samzel. In 93, the company acquired large portfolio properties from Barry Stellingshop. Sterling, Sternlicht in exchange for 20% stake in the company. Sternlicht had acquired the properties via government auctions after the savings and loan crisis. Hmm. And yeah, they've been on a. They've been. Price, uh, this is the stock price. We're looking at the market cap. Looking at the market cap, they seem to be on the rise since 2010. So, what happened 10 years ago? The cost is jumping to the fortune list. It's interesting find out. Anyways, Equity Residential, uh, yeah, 1993, I did uh, quite a large portfolio of properties oh, from Sternlicht, okay, we're right there. And in, on August 11, 93, the company became a public company via an IPO. At the time, the company owned 22,000 apartments. Hmm. In 97, the company acquired Wells Ford Residential Property Trust. 
for 620 million in stock and the assumption of three for six million debt and acquired Evans with a comp residential in 98 the company acquired a portfolio of 5,000 about 6,000 apartments from Lincoln property and acquired Maryland and owned that 4,000 about 5,000 units in Southeast US stock and all of this and that and this and preferred stock in 99 the company acquired Lexford residential trusts so they just a lot of acquisitions of other trusts okay and Lexford owned mainly one-story affordable housing units rented to households with incomes between 5,000 and 30. see very targeted marketing with Lexford here in 2001, the company was added to the S&P 500. January 2003, CEO Douglas Crocker retired during his tenure. The company increased its ownership, wow, from 22,000 apartments to um, 227,000 apartments. Douglas Crocker. Uh, Try to see more information about this person. Douglas Croker. Don't know much. All right, come back. In 2006, the company sold its Lexford affordable housing division, which included 27,000 apartments. So they sold in 2006. In 2013, February 27th, Equity Residential and Avalon Bay Communities closed a $9 billion deal to acquire Arkstone from Lemon Brothers. Hmm. In 2013, the company sold 8,000 apartment units to a joint venture of Goldman Sachs and Greystar Real Estate Partners for this. In 2016, the company sold 23,000 apartments to Starwood Capital Group for $5 billion. And was later reinvested. It's 2016, 2013. Like, the company started seeing interesting climbs from 2010. And this was... 2010 closest information we have here is when they um, around when they did that deal something happened between 2006 which is when they sold Lexford so they sold Lexford for one billion about one billion give them enough you know capital bracket to do to be able to acquire makes sense to, to acquire the Axstone trust from Lehman Brothers which kind of explains that interesting climb there wow legal issues um, equity residential was sued in a class action in 2017 uh, due to allegations that it charged late payment fees in violation of California law oh wow in 2022, the company agreed to pay approximately $2 million, settled a lawsuit filed by Attorney General 
of the District of Columbia alleging the company offered misleading rent discounts on a rent controlled building in Washington. No, no, no much drama on these guys. Uh, this is clearly real estate. Um, we'll look at the Osamzel CEO, CFO, Robert A. Gary Chana. Oh, so yeah, very clear what the company does. Since real estate investment has a lot of properties, mainly in the United States. Um, it's interesting. Introduced to the whole concept of real estate investment trust. Sam Zell. Well, Samuel Zell. Uh, born 1941, American billionaire, businessman, philanthropist, former lawyer. Sells the founder and chairman of, of Equity Group Investments, a private investment firm founded in 1968. Mm-hmm. He has interest in is the chairman of several public companies listed in the New York Stock the stock exchange of equity residential equity lifestyle properties. Oh, he the guy likes equity, equity lifestyle properties, equity commonwealth, and Covanta Holding Corp. and Anixta. Okay, 21. Zell has an estimated worth of about six billion dollars. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. University of Michigan. Conventional wisdom is nothing but a reference point. <laughs> Conventional wisdom. It's nothing but a, res- a reference point. We see opportunities others don't and invest like others can't. As a capital for investment, equity group investment, true partner shares the risk. A macro view advances opportunity each year. Mm-hmm. And I wrote article recently. We will likely have a recession. Samzel, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Um, a biography. Uh oh. What am I seeing? Uh oh. Okay, Zell was born in September 28, 1941, in Chicago. His parents. Ruchla and Berk Z. Lonka were Jewish immigrants from Poland, where his father had been a successful grain trader. They emigrated to the United States with their young daughter, Leah, via Tokyo. Soon after arriving, his parents changed their first and last names, becoming Rochelle and Bernard Zell. Hmm. They then moved from Seattle to Albany Park neighborhood in Chicago, where his father became a jewelry, jewelry wholesaler. When he was 12, the family moved to Highland Park, Illinois, where he graduated from Highland Park High School. In 1963, Zell graduated with a bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan, where he was also a member of the Alpha Epsilon Pi fraternity. 
Nice. What? Okay. What did he study? Well, while in school, Zell entered the real estate business. He managed a 15-unit apartment building. Hmm. In return for a free room and board. Wow. Good. Good deal. Soon, he was managing the owners of the properties. By his graduation, the venture was netting 150K. Joined by his fraternity brother, Rufford H. Leary, he won a contract with a large apartment developer owner in Ann Arbor. So this is really grass. This is really grassroot growth. Like, you know, found a deal to, but how did he get this deal to be able to manage this building in return for this? Anyways, he won a contract with a large apartment development owner in Ann Arbor. By the time he graduated with a JD from the University of Michigan Law School in 1966, he and Lurie were managing over 4,000 apartments and owned 100 to 200 units outright. After school, he sold his interest in the management company to Lurie and moved to Chicago. After graduation, Zell worked as a lawyer for one week before deciding that the legal profession was not for him. <laughs> well, one of the senior partners decided to invest with him, enabling Zell to purchase an apartment building in Toledo. Zell also purchased several apartment buildings in Reno, Nevada, including Arlington Towers. Wow. In 1968, Zell founded the predecessor of equity group investments and was joined a year later by his former partner, Louis. Together, they went on to grow the small firm into a vast enterprise until Louis' death in 1990. Equity group investments was the genesis for Equity Residential, the largest apartment owner in the United States. Uh, Equity Office Properties Trust, the largest office owner in the country, and Equity Lifestyle Properties, an owner and operator of a manufactured home and resort communities. In 2006, the Blackstone Group announced the purchase of Equity Office for $36 billion, which was the largest leveraged buyout in history at the time. Blackstone then sold many of the portfolio properties for record amounts. By early 2009, most of the properties sold were underwater. Hmm. Other investments by Zell. Uh, Zell Affiliates owned the Schwinn Bicycle Company. Interesting. The drugstore Refco, department store chain. Broadway Stores Energy Company, Santa Fe Energy Resources, and Mattress Company, Sealy. 1985, Zell took over ITEL Corporation. Between 92 and 99, Zell's uh, Chilmak Fund owned Jacor Communications, a successful radio broadcast group that included a television station. The company was sold to Clear Channel. Um, communications in 99. On April 2nd, 2007, 
the Tribune company announced its acceptance of Zell's offer to sponsor the going private transaction of Chicago Tribune, the Los Angeles Times, and the company's other media assets. On December 20, 2007, Zell took the company private, and the following day he became the chairman and CEO. Okay. And he sold the Chicago Cubs and the company's 25% interest in Comcast Sportnet uh, Chicago under the burden and debt incurred as part of sales leveraged buyout. And in context of the unexpected severity, the Great Recession, the Tribune co filed for Chapter 11, 2008. 2008, Zell a controlling share in the Tribune company owner of the Chicago Tribune, among other newspapers. His decision to put Randy Michaels in charge was one of the several moves that were sharply criticized by employees. Besides creating a hostile workplace, Michaels laid off several employees, which gave large bonuses to the executives. Hmm. Less than a year after Zell bought the company, it tipped into bankruptcy, listing $7.6 billion in assets against a debt of 13, wow, making it the largest bankruptcy in the history of the American media industry. Well, more than 4,200 people have lost jobs since the purchase by resources for the Tribune newspapers and television stations have been slashed. Interesting. Philanthropy. So his wife, Helen, a philanthropist who focused heavily on education and the arts. Among the public beneficiaries of the University of Michigan, with the sponsorship of the Zellory Institute for Entrepreneurial Studies and the Master of Fine Arts. Okay. It's also a major donor to causes in Israel. His donations include three million donations to the Herzliya Interdisciplinary Center of that private university. Okay. Free market oriented Israeli think tank in the United States he was given major gifts to such Jewish causes as the American Jewish Committee and the Bernard Zell School. Well, he has Jewish origin so he's got to support his people. Our political involvement Zell donated 100k to restore a future the super PAC. Supporting 2012 presidential election campaign of Bit Romney in 2015, supported John Bolton. Well, criticism and controversies. So, is known for using salty language in the newsroom. Right? So, in February 2018, he said, Last week, you may have encountered some colorful uses of the lexicon from some Zell that we are not used to hearing at the times. But of course, we still have the same expectations at the times of what is correct in the workplace. It's no good judgment to use profane or hostile language, and we can't tolerate that. He shared, not, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, he he has a loose tongue too. Just typical of most, you know, fucking billionaires, like, who gives a damn about language. Hi, Cecile. Uh, I'm just looking at my phone now. Um, in case you're just joining. So this is a series and it's recorded just in case uh, 
you just want to listen and don't want to speak, that's fine. Um, this is a, it's a series, it's the eighth episode in the Fortune series. So we randomly select, you know, companies on the Fortune 1000 list and kind of look at the companies, see what the companies do, see what the founders are, you know, try and figure out what to learn from it. And just the eighth episode, Equity Residential. And so the, the previous episodes on this one will also be posted on uh, on my website, fortune.techseed.org, just in case you want to see the previous episodes of this one too. So, so far we, we looked at um, Equity Residential. It's a, it's a company valued at about $23 billion. And there's about 688 on the list. Um, yeah, the company is basically real estate. It's been around for almost for about 59 years, if not more. Um, <laughs> so they've been around for a minute. Uh, they're basically invested. They, they invest in properties. And so like in the U.S., they own almost about 80,000 apartment units. So they manage all these properties and I guess rent or lease them. So that's how, that's how they make money. So we're looking at the, at the founder, Samzel, almost done with, um, with him. You know, he started small, um, Jewish background, of course, you know, not implying anything, but <laughs> he, he didn't start well off. Um, he had to, his first management, he started managing a 15 unit apartment building um, in exchange for having to stay rent free in one of the rooms. I just ask a question. You on six six seven of the one thousand fortune list of fortunes, um, people who have achieved fortune. Is that is that where you are now? Uh, or... yes. So oh. I, I'm not. No, it's randomly chosen. Oh, I see. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> yes. Um, Otherwise, that would have been like too many episodes, right? That's right. I was thinking <laughs> quite a lot. So, so basically, what you're trying to um, do. Is, are you trying to explain their source of wealth, how they actually became wealthy, or are you just randomly? I yeah, mean, I'm trying to find out. Yeah. Are you trying to? I this, yeah, this I, I don't even know about these companies. I'm just selecting at random from the whole list, and then digging into the information to find out yes. what they're doing to make money and how they started. So it's like there's some kind of the art of success. So you can one can read about them and see how how they actually achieve their wealth. So one can learn how to sort of um, follow the thing. Okay, get it. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. I think I'll visit your website as well. But I'll just leave you to get on that because I think I'm something I think I might like a lot. So let me just... <laughs> Appreciate it, yeah. And so another thing to notice, so today, there when we drew the, the random, there were 667. So it looks like this thing changes real fast. So now they're 688. So they have gone down more than 20 steps down, I guess. So, you know, it's a very busy, the traffic is funny here. 
on the Fortune 1000 list. So, so basically, it fluctuates ever so frequently. Is that what you say? Yeah, yeah. That's that's what's going on. So it can. I mean, over what period of time frame? Like a week or two? Or this is yeah, yeah. This is a week. Wow. So yeah. why does that happen? Is it because of the market or something like that, or financial instability? What's the cause of that? Um, so there are definitely new companies that are jumping on board um, and some companies are being taken out. So definitely some company has certain companies, maybe training companies that have achieved a valuation that's bigger than theirs. And they also have reduced quite like only today alone, they have lost in market cap about 2% just today. And so over the week, uh, they seem to be on a downtrend now for like, like this year. They started, like they started, like so, in April, April they were about thirty five billion. Now they're twenty four, so they're they're on a downtrend. So, so that's I think that's the cause is they're falling, and not they're not really stable. And then maybe other companies are trying to overtake. It's like I think they're having challenges. I didn't know what what's making their value go down. But. Okay, I thought it was due to the stock the stock market changing or fluctuating over a period of time, or is it something else apart from that? That I think that ha- could have um, a significant effect as well. Okay. Yeah. So, is your focus mainly on U.S. businesses, or is it businesses? Oh, no, it's, no, it's global. So. Oh, global. Yeah, global. Like last week. So we have touched a company that was in Indonesia. I think that's As- I think Astra, uh, uh, and another one. Uh, no, that's probably Nave. Another one that's in Sweden. Uh, so we've done like so this is eight episodes. Most of them, of course, are based in US, but I think we've touched three other countries as well. So yeah. So the list that you you actually basing their wealth on is a global uh, yeah it's a global assessment. list yeah yeah oh i follow now okay that's yeah. interesting and yeah. it's regularly updated so yeah. i mean okay wonderful mm. <laughs> yeah sure have you, identified, have you identified any pattern with all the people who have achieved this vast amount of wealth has there been any kind of approach that they've taken that one can see a particular trend from that one could learn in future um, it's honestly like it's hard. I, I can't really see a pattern. So it's, it's hard to say that like, so some of them, like I think the one we did last, th- this guys, they've had like real generational wealth. Like they've been around for almost 150 years and they are the biggest comp. They are the biggest, richest family in Sweden. Or so I think is the Wallenberg family and they've had five generations of wealth. Like every year, this family brings in about as a, a a billion dollars or so. I don't know. Um, and so those ones, like the thing was just handed over, so it's like generational wealth, which gives them um, leverage to invest in a lot of companies and get returns. But like people like this dude here, he didn't have any generational wealth to work with, so. Most people who don't have generational wealth, what they do is like they have a quite huge experience either from education or just being actively in that industry where they eventually make a lot of money from. 
uh, welcome Kufor. So that's what I've been noticing. Most of the founders, like, who eventually do this, uh, you know, very aggressive, have been in very rough conditions, uh, you know, in the start. They didn't have the initial capital, but they somehow found their way through by being in that industry. Like this this guy, Samzel, for this equity uh, residential, like, he was able to negotiate a deal where he would manage a building in exchange for rent. And just started growing from there so he didn't have that initial capital he was able to network and then get investment eventually from being able to understand the game of managing property so i think that's the case for and these two and also walt disney so we did disney like i think two episodes before and disney too like didn't have any generational world handed to him. He was just a prolific cartoonist. Like he would draw a lot of animations. And eventually, uh, while he was very young, he got the opportunity to draw for a big, for the big newspaper, which gave him publicity uh, that kind of opened the doors for him. So, yeah. But in other cases, it's like handed down wealth, generational wealth, or being able to, like the one in Indonesia, because they have a huge presence in Indonesia, they were able to secure um, the license to be the only importers of Toyota in the country. And they were able to do this for like almost a decade. So that's like just, you know, huge license to money because Toyota is like a huge brand. Imagine being the only person that can sell Toyota in your country. It's like that just opened the door for them for a lot of opportunities, you know, to rake in that cash. So, um, yeah, I don't know if there's a pattern there, but yeah, but I I personally kind of um, find quite inspiring the ones that you told me about, the ones that started off from nothing, just like the education they were given. Because mm-hmm. I believe lots of people would learn a lot from that. Because the people with like inherited wealth, I mean, what is there to learn from it? Because everyone can have their father or mother um, pass on their wealth to them. They That's haven't true. actually worked for it. They haven't actually achieved anything at all. But when you hear about the people who started from humble beginnings and wholly had education given to them, and um, they were able to make something quite substantial from it, that is quite a good thing. That's quite inspiring. Yeah, and I totally agree. I'm just thinking if I went to your website, I might be able to dig up those who started off for nothing and actually made something quite substantial. But, Would but I that's be- a good point. Because maybe I will try and sort, you know, we've, we have only seven episodes up on the site, but as it gets more, I'll try and sort it where that makes sense as to where maybe people want to select only certain content that is from people who started from the scratch versus you know, people who had who had a huge capital handed to them. Um, the the only thing with the people handed to them is still like because there are people who get stuff handed to them, but they become bankrupt, and they're not able to know how to use what exists to uh, either improve or grow the wealth. Um, it it shrinks or becomes like or goes to nothing. So. They're, like those people are still active, even the ones that that get inherited wealth, they still have to do certain things in terms of uh, knowing where to invest, acquisitions, um, 
knowing what industry to play into, but either maintain, sustain the wealth, or grow it. But it may not be that helpful to most people because, you know, like very few people have access to generational wealth. Like for most people who will build something meaningful, it's like starting from scratch and learning how to uh, to build something, put it in the market, something marketable, and then um, getting some form of traction by networking and getting investors involved in what people are doing. That's like the usual pathway from the grind. I get your point that yeah. um, even if you are inherit, if you inherited certain wealth or business um, opportunities, that you have to be quite smart as well to actually make it productive. But the fact remains as well, though, that the, the odds of people who inherited their father's or their parents' wealth... Way higher. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, because there's a possibility that when you inherited it, you must have worked in it for a period of time. So some people are actually born in a, in a family of wealth, right? When they finished school, they started working in their father and mother's business, and that business kept flourishing and flourishing. And by virtue of the fact that they worked in it, they've actually gained lots of experience right. over that period, right? So the likelihood of them sort of like failing miserably is quite different. I understand that in some cases, um, you have sons and daughters or children who haven't actually grown up in the business, right? Mm -hmm. They find themselves in a position where their parents died, They've got no experience whatsoever, and they've just been told that, oh, you're, this is the will of your father or the pulpit. It states that you have to control the set, certain business, business which they have no clue whatsoever how it has actually gained its prominence mm -hmm. and its success. So in those instances, you will find that those people are brought in there without any experience whatsoever, mm -hmm. without them having people around them who knows exactly what's going on and how to make progress. They're likely to fail them. I mean, I don't know the statistics, though, but I, I am inclined to believe that those are the cases where people, the business fail. So even though they have this acquired wealth, but because they have no experience whatsoever, mm -hmm. they, they make much of it. So is yeah, that a we, case? Yeah, we actually oh. touched on one. I don't know if it's the Indonesian one or another one where um, the family, so the company was, was big, but they eventually started dropping because... Um, the the son of the the son of the owner of the company um started the bank and the bank became insolvent and so there was a lot of lawsuits for the kid for the kid and the father had to bail the kid out by paying how many billion dollars to save them which then affected his own company so it's like the kid should probably not be doing business um because like it's not from the grind like set up a whole bank for his child and the child couldn't manage it. The bank just fell, fell down. I don't know the exact company, but like you just reminded me talking about this and yeah, like this happens to, to, to rich kids. And so most, that's why most of the companies you see who stand, they don't, they don't pass over to, to their offspring. The Passover to the, you know, hand, hand control over to someone who has been in the company and shown the track record of, knowing what what they're doing that is right actually yeah. in those instances where like yeah you're right absolutely in those instances where for example the child is not grown up in the family business mm -hmm. would it not be better for like you said for them to get somebody else to run the business for them and then the like the shares from the company or whatever 
is inherited by the child or the business will be owned by them, but they will not be actively involved in the day-to-day running of the business. So they will get from it. But when it comes to sort of like um, strategic decision-making, like um, important matters relating to the progress of the business or new investment options, they will not be able, they will not be actively involved in that because obviously they have no experience or probably the parent will say, well, okay, they have to be there after 20 years of them working actively. I don't know. uh, I mean, it could do probably to that effect. Like they have to work in the business for a certain period or it would have to be with somebody who's experienced and after a period of time, they can take over, which makes more sense. But um, yeah, because I mean, I'm just trying to get something because I'm, I, I hear about these very rich people all the time and I'm so puzzled. I'm like, okay, how did they get there? How, what did you, what could I individually learn? I mean, I'm not a capitalist anyway. Um, I understand your position, Captain, before I proceed. Yeah. And I don't, dis- I, I respect it fully. But um, like, I, I, I do get um, intrigued by how these people got to where they got to. Like, I'm, I'm full of admiration, as I indicated earlier on, for the people that actually started off from nothing and got something. But, but I mean, it's all part of the capitalist system, which, um, Okay. It's just the people make it, and then the rest of this population don't make it, and I, and I have a bit of issues with that. Of course, it's a bit of beef with that, but um, yeah, I, I quite like it. I quite like what you you're actually doing, but it's just that I would love to see a lot more about these individuals because I hear a lot about them. Like some of the richest people in in the UK, like this guy that is the prime minister of the UK, Ricky Sunak, his his wife um, came from a very wealthy family. They've acquired huge amounts of wealth, mm-hmm. and Lots of people are trying to see, well, how come, how did they get it? And sometimes, like, it's only recently that we found out in the UK because they were actually um, not paying taxes in the UK because she's been here for many years. They they had their children here, but she was not paying um, local taxes. She was here as a non-dom, which means that it was not paying a residential tax, which costed the taxpayer a lot of money, even though there was a loophole in the law that she um, took advantage of. To, to derive that benefit. Lots of people were uncomfortable about it because like, how could you be so wealthy and you are avoiding taxes and you're benefiting from a system that you are, you're, you're avoiding paying taxes into? So, I mean, there's actually there's some ethical issues as well. I mean, everything was kosher. She was doing everything within the framework of the law. But it's just that people had issues with why do rich people, um, why are they so reluctant or uneasy about paying their dues to society whereas the poor people are able to sort of do that and yeah i mean some people argue that they feel like they're paying their due by employing people and paying salaries non-stop i mean but but then i think this as personally from being ben, you know beneficiaries of a of a you know running business that you're getting cash flow like every now and then there should there should be some form of investment in in form of taxes and and some people do like they they do a philanthropic pledge where they belong to like philanthropic organizations where they're able to give back to society uh for free and they invest in like noble causes um to kind of you know that's the way of giving back i i want to hope that most billionaires do this i think all of them do because there's like like most billionaires have that pledge where they they invest in a lot of philanthropic stuff because they yes. yeah but, but by by proportion of their wealth 
do you think they're doing now? Because, for example, if I have a thousand pound now, and I think, okay, I'm going to give like a hundred pound to people in need, then obviously I'm doing a lot more than the person who has a million pound and then giving only one thousand pound. That's right. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, the point is not that they do lots of philanthropic work. The point is what percentage of their income is used to help the poor. And also, how much exploitation do they, um, do they carry out on their staffs? Because many staff from companies which are doing pretty well, mm-hmm. um, figures indicate that they're, they're actually subjected to exploitative actions. Like they work hard, they don't get enough pay. They're yeah. recognized. So notwithstanding the fact that jobs have been created, which is a good thing, but these people, in my humble opinion, they tend to benefit a lot more from the economy than they actually bring to the nation. So in a sense, a lot of profit, they're allowed to get away with not paying limited taxes. So the people who are actually working and paying their usual taxes, in actual fact, by proportion of their earnings, they tend to pay more than these people. And then you have the election time coming, and some of them, they go in and, and give lots of donations. Yeah, sorry to buzz you. Kufor, I'm trying to add you, but I cannot. I don't know what's going. Maybe try... Um, yeah, try to jump over and come back in and see if um, and request again. Yeah, go ahead, Cecil. Yeah, it'd be nice to hear his perspective as well. Yeah, so I mean, so the point I was making is like, I I get your point and it's a legitimate one, and but I don't see whether one can actually um, say that it's a fair point mm-hmm. because I understand what you're saying that the rich tends to be the one that gives more donations, and we hear about it all the time. They're doing lots of philanth- philanthropic work traffic work and they actually helping people the poor people they're giving aid but i'm always thinking like well is it not just like creating a, a false impression of them doing something in circumstances where they're actually not doing that much uh, right it's, it's that could be a case honestly that could be a case but i would just need good data to know like kind of follow some of the investment because i know like a lot so a lot of like medical aid that goes to a lot of the world um where it's unpaid for all of the logistics the the health the medicine all of the stuff is beef is being financed by um a lot of rich people i don't know who because people can hide under the banner and not really be really true um um donors to these great causes and just be part of an organization just for um but so i i would i mean i would hope that the thing is like most people who become really rich is ideally they're adding value to the world not just in terms of the employees in terms of what the business is doing like it's creating a product or a service that is making life easier for people so i don't like so for this equity residential I, I don't exactly know the the social impact of what they're doing by daily if they're making apartments uh they are managing properties and making it more accessible for for people to own or have access to property that they're going they're doing a good thing um if they're making if it's they're putting it in a position where most people cannot afford the houses then it's a problem you know then they're just making money of it so it's it probably a case by case scenario, whereas then maybe who will have a you know time to want to track each billionaire to be sure that 
they're actually a worthy billionaire. But the thing is, every billionaire has understood, especially the legal system, very well in such a way they put themselves in a position where they can constantly earn money from what they're doing. Because if they're not doing it, a competition will come up, will come around and take away their market share. So most times, the, what the company is doing is trying to stay, trying to hold their market share, if not increase it. And so that's usually where their focus is. And they may not really be worried about what's going on in the outside world, I think. So they're, they're trying, they're, they're, their problems are, are usually competition. Go for it. Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, so um, th- there's something I just want to point out. You know, uh, there's this misconception that a lot of people have that uh, billionaire philanthropy really helps society or billionaires or super rich individuals are really doing well. Okay, to, to to an extent, they help fund some of the advancements, some of the innovations that we have. But in another way, what the, the, the bad thing that they do is that they extend or they, they help to widen the gap between the extremely rich and the super poor. You know, we tend to look at the world and we say we have moved forward. Uh, they give you numbers to say millions of people have been moved out of poverty, let's say from the 1900s till today. Lifestyle is better and all of that. This, these numbers, sometimes they don't really project the reality, right? Mm. Uh, in, in 1900, you don't have, you don't have less than 1% owning about, 90, about 95% of the wealth of the entire world. In 1990, sorry, in the 1900s, you also don't have so many million people all over the world who are living in abject poverty. Uh, you could you could come to Nigeria in 1900, you could go to South Africa or Indonesia within that period, you will still find poor people. But these poor people are still able to extract resources from their lands and feed themselves. What they don't have at the time really are maybe uh, luxurious items to benefit from. But mm. this day, people who were able to feed themselves in the past, in one way or the other, they could not do it because a few individuals are sitting on the to- at the top of the f- food chain, making a lot of money, and then every once in a while, they do donations of whether it's a billion or, or a million dollars or $10 million to say they are funding a uh, world peace. I'll give you an example in the United States, what happened during uh, the COVID pandemic. Uh, while the rest of the world was falling sick and dying, uh, one particular man was, you know, amassing wealth. And then uh, I, even even though I, most of his wealth was slashed by the divorce that he had, Jeff Bezos, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, became very rich. While this man was amassing wealth, he was actively paying lawyers, actively paying people from the background just so that they suppress people from, from his Amazon to unionize. And you know, <coughs> when workers unionize, they'll be able to speak in one voice. They'll be able to uh, demand more from their employers. But he, he, this guy will still go behind the back, you know, donate money, and people will call him a good person. But the same set of individuals who are directly working under you, right? You are, you are killing them off. You are ensuring that just about enough money to maybe uh, fuel their cars, uh, put clothes on their back and feed their children. But you see that these particular individuals, they will not really have uh, um, the opportunities to maybe pursue their dreams the way uh, everybody, when you were in high school, they'll ask you, what do you want to do? I want to become a businessman. No, they, they just want to tie you there and then it becomes like a treadmill. 
at the end of the day, the 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 child of the of the delivery driver who works for Amazon probably sends his children to another school, uh, to a school that probably doesn't measure up to where Bezos children will go to school. And in the future, when Bezos children uh, start managing Bezos uh, wealth, the uh, the luxury drive, the, sorry, the delivery driver's children is likely going to take up delivery driving job again, and then they'll have more children, and we have more people who are tied down in that uh, lower lower ladder. So, <laughs> see, yeah, go ahead. I was I was just coughing. So I I I, I could do it like I was in a space this evening with L when one Nigerian guy was just saying rubbish about billionaire philanthropy and how they are creating wealth and all of that. And yeah, one of the examples he was giving was the richest man in Africa who, according to him, has built a lot of industries, employed a lot of people. But what they don't tell you is they, not, they don't tell you the number of businesses that these guys' monopolistic uh, uh, activities have, have sent to the to the grave. They don't tell you the amount of kickbacks. They don't tell you, just like so, uh, he said now, he mentioned about Rishu Sinak's uh, in-laws. They don't tell you how, because they can afford to, they pay all the best lawyers in New York, all the best lawyers in London, so that these guys will poke holes in the legal system of every country. Do you know that the average teacher, right, in the United States, pay more tax uh, as a as, uh, as a fraction of the percentage of their earning than somebody like Elon Musk. Uh, look at what happened with uh, uh, this guy, Joe. Um, what do you call him, Donald Trump, who lost his wife, one of his uh, his late wife recently. What did he do? He found he found a loophole in the system and buried his wife. In, in, in one of his properties so that he won't pay uh, uh, taxes that is accrued to him. I've also read instances where the same man, he will have golf courses, he will have luxury golf, golf, golf courses where people come to play golf and pay a lot of money. But just because he doesn't want to uh, pay taxes that he's supposed to pay, he will just get a, a few goods and a few cows and put them on the on the golf course and call it an agricultural a, 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 a farm or something just so uh, you, uh, you see that the average say the average hoteler or the average person who has a small business don't have the, uh, the, 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 the money to be able to, to hire these very expensive New York lawyers who find these loopholes in the system that these guys will continue to exploit so if, if uh, uh, Donald Trump eventually goes back to, to give the community a hundred dollar or sorry a hundred million dollar people chant and say he has done very well but what they don't know is for every money that he make he has done a lot of things to prevent people from you know uh, living poverty yeah uh, and the, pre the prevention is and what you're saying is correct and the thing is, I've understood why people do this. Like, like billionaires are not, they're competing with themselves. Like, like millionaires compete with millionaires. I mean, depending on, on what their projections are. Like, once, once people leave the rat race, like, the things, the things they're surrounded around, like, those are the things that influence their decisions, their actions, and how they move. Like, for a fact, billionaires are really not thinking about poor people. That is a fact. They're thinking about their companies. They're thinking about their holdings. How can I grow? How can I expand? Mr. B that started the company the same day with me is now getting government contracts. Why the hell am I not getting government contracts? Why am I not having this market share? Like, those are the things that are in their head, right? So, like, hence, the result is they now have to have, like, even all of the philanthropy is not them. They just hire managers, Hire people to do all of that stuff, so they don't even thinking about this stuff. Why? Because 
fortunately, like the legal, I don't know, fortunately, unfortunately, the legal system or the way the world is, is like only, only, only certain people can have a certain market share. So like the way the economics of the world is, if everyone desires, everyone has a desire for a product or has a desire for something that they want, they will have to acquire it one way or the other. And now we have currency as a thing. So definitely people will have to have money to afford whatever. Now, when we have a free market system, anybody can create a product. Who is to determine um, who's to determine who's going to sell? Who's to determine who will have acquired the customers? So everybody's racing, using whatever they have to get as much customers as they want to stay in business and also to be profitable and also to be in a position where they're reaching their quote-unquote revenue goals. And so, like, businesses are for profit. They're not thinking about what problem is my profit causing in the world. They just, they're trying not to lose. So, like, thinking about a world where that would not be the case and is would is this gonna be communism? Is this gonna be socialism? Isn't that just gonna move the the hegemony from private citizens to the government, where it's now the government that will now control all of that money and probably use nepotism to put people they like and people they know in positions of authority, like what Russia is doing, right? All of the people who own the businesses that dominate Russia are close to Putin. So like it's it's like regardless of the economic system, you will you will still have a cluster, a handful of people that would own a lot of stuff. Uh, I think they call it the eighty twenty rule or so. It's like it's it's like this is something that we're forced in nature. And even in sports, when you look at it, like how many soccer teams are in the world? How many will ever get to get the Champions League? Only on, only a few will get to to be in the Champions League. Only a handful will repeatedly win the trophy. So it's like, to me, like I feel like a benign world would be something that where there's more equity. But the thing is, it's hard for me when I consider all of the, all of the components of economics as to where this is feasible, where everybody yeah. can just win. Captain, you get what I mean? Captain, yeah. What we've had, you know, for a very long time, and it has served the world, you know, because of because of it, we've had. <clears throat> Excuse me. A lot of advancements in, in technology. A lot of advancements in 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 what many people across the world now enjoy. Right. But recently, we've we've also been discovering that this thing that brought us all of these benefits also brought us a lot of harm, and it is right. because of that harm that is why in Egypt today there is a meeting going on, and all world leaders are there to discuss climate action. Climate change, yeah. Now, America. Japan, China, like all these countries, name them. They built, they built uh, their, their their countries, and and everybody was just chanting, "You guys are doing well." But today, as a result of the, all the advancements, all their developments, there is famine. There is famine today in Somalia, because of the fact that America had to grow, because of China is growing, because Europe has built themselves to become industrialized. There is a Pacific island nation that is called Kiribati, and I feel that in the next 50 to 100 years, Kiribati will no longer exist because it will just be uh, uh, sunken deep by, by water. So, in my opinion, really, uh, what, what we should be doing is 
look for a way to counter new liberal capitalism the kind of capitalism that tells you that you can go ahead and make profit and make profit and make profit you know without caring whether the fact that you are doing business in america and making billions that there are people in indonesia who are really suffering as a result of what you are doing I, so why why while we why we want to make advancements for ourselves. I think this is where government should come in to sometimes break up some of these corporate organizations because if Standard Oil was not broken down like uh, that antitrust law that came up, you know, in, in the 1930s, as it was in 1930s or 1940s, to break down Standard Oil, we probably would not have had many of the oil companies that we have today because uh, this guy, uh, John D. Rockefeller, would still have been doing everything possible for him you know to put down other companies and ensure that you know they don't come up and we won't have competition yeah. I, I recall what happened in, in america i think it was in the 20s these same individuals and colonels uh, vanderbilt uh, um uh, andrew d carnegie uh, uh the ford guy and then um, um, um what's this guy's name the finance guy J.P. Morgan Chase, who eventually uh, bought American Steel Company. These guys sit down, just five or six individuals, sit down and decide who would become the president of America. They decide who will become a uh, member, who will become uh, uh, MPs. They decide who would head uh, whichever position, just so that these people who are who are their puppets will continue to make laws that would favor them. You can imagine Colonel Vanderbilt uh, financing that, that uh, politicians that... Said? Like, don't you don't you think that saying that just six people are making these decisions is exaggerated? Like, the, I, I am the, I am not exaggerating, yeah. bro. I, you can go look for that. There's a documentary that is called The Men Who Built yeah, I've, America. I've heard, I've heard of it. Yeah, I've heard of it. So I'm, I'm like, it, it is, I, I, why, I think, not... why I think is exaggerated is I think that there are so many factors that contribute to leaders. You know, I I, I know they're not the overwhelming majority of people. But I don't think it's just a handful of people, right? There are a lot of executives, like even the people you are selecting, they have to be willing to do the work. You can't force someone who doesn't want to be a leader to be a leader. Well, well, well. Right. You know, we know we are living in a pyramid, in a world that looks like like a pyramid, where it feels like somebody sits up there and does a lot of control and manipulation, right? Mm -hmm. Just like the United States, or not just the United States, all over history, when one dominant power uh, comes into play, it sits there. There was a time that Rome, uh, people right, were sitting right. in Rome and yeah. orchestrating that is happening in faraway Tunisia, mm -hmm. in faraway the United Kingdom. There was yeah. a time that it was, it was part of Russia. There was a time that it was the Mongol Empire. Correct, sitting in, right. in Mongolia and, and dictating a lot of things that were ha that are happening. So when I when when you tell people that oh it's Gemniskan that is doing this thing, they'll tell you no, it is not him. But all of the people who are playing what they are everything that that, that is happening eventually stop at his table. So it is either he's directly or indirectly influencing all of these people to do the things that they do so that his empire will continue to expand. And exactly. that is what and, uh, and, when and, I Yeah. And they have lieutenants as well. Like so like a lot of the a lot a lot of the decisions are actually divested to executives who are exactly so, so if, a lot if, from, if somebody from, goes into yeah. battle, we, we praised Alexander the Great a lot as one of right. the you know best military general and this guy Hannibal also. It, it was not just them going into right. battle. They have generals, they have lieutenants. Exactly. So just just the same way these billionaires, I'll, I'll even give you examples of Nigeria. I, and I, I'm usually afraid of mentioning some of these things because sometimes I get access to 
reading a lot of things that the average person don't see. So somebody uh, paid 3 million euros recently, you know, to rent a yacht to celebrate his uh, 60th birthday. And Nigerians were celebrating with him. And I remember reading a book that Okonjoy Weala wrote, the current uh, uh, head of the World Trade Organization, the Nigerian woman. And she, she pointed out that this guy who, who is celebrating his birthday is one of those people who fought tooth and nail so that they will not remove fuel subsidy in Nigeria. And Nigerian government continued to pay these guys billions and tens of billions of dollars. And eventually, uh, uh, there was a time one of his daughters went to donate, I think, about two billion naira to to i think it was save the children in the mid in, in, in the northeast of the country when we were having uh boko haram so a lot of people were just clapping and say ah this family they are doing very well but i say that the money that they are they are giving you they are just returning a fraction of the money that belongs to us when when dangote does a few things and people celebrate when elon Musk does a few things people celebrate and say you have done very well the family of the family of uh, sunak's wife when they do a few things people in the uk are going to say you are doing well but they will not know that behind this scenes these guys are not paying tax behind the scenes it, it may not just be them that are not paying tax they are also doing the same thing so that their own lieutenants will not pay but the, the classroom teacher the the taxi driver the the guy who's, uh, who who uh, does delivery these guys are paying their tax to the fullest but these other people who are supposed to be paying more tax are looking for ways to exploit the system <laughs> and we know that we know that what powers all of this is military might right Unfortunately, we still live in a world where mind is right. Like the US is able to detect a lot of that. And that's that's where the dilemma comes in. Any system that's gonna overturn an already dominating system will have to use force to take them out. Like no dominating system will leave on their own accord. It has never happened. Right? The the ones who are in power are there because they are connected with those who are the existing power and their allies. All of the corporations in America are in bed with the government of America because this is what makes America America. Like America, we will give contracts to the same people that you know are, are the ones producing its military uh, um, systems because that's what protects them. So, like, if we're trying to change it, is is a good idea. But the, for me, it's like getting to the how. How do you? How do we convince the United States government to not protect all of the corporations with all of its marines when they are the same people who are the marines, right? The whole Lockheed Martin, all of them, like this. These are the things that make America America. They have their foothold in all around the world because they have military supremacy. So, another system that's going to come up will also need to have a structure to be formidable against the already existing preeminent structure, to be able to kick it. If you want to fight them and kick them out, you just have to have the muscle for it. Because the truth is they don't, they, they don't care about the ethics that we're thinking of. Like the, the priority is, is dominance. And it's probably better in the American system because a random Jew, of course, has a shot, but you just cannot have a shot with benign means. You have, a, like, if you're gonna create a company that's gonna be successful, it has to, it has to benefit the United States government. Like, it's, it's like, if it doesn't benefit the United States government, they don't see how it can work, right? Google creates a lot of algorithm for, for its, uh, for for the United States government security. So, like, 
if you're going to fight Google, you're going to be fighting the United States government. AWS, Amazon, has a lot of servers that run the United States government, that runs the United States military. If you're going to be fighting Jeff Bezos and all of that, you're going to be fighting the government. So it's like, how, like where where do you come in to fight? Like, of course, you could have a good cause of, yeah, it's, more, it's better Like if you're thinking about other people. But the government is not thinking about that. They're thinking on how can they maintain their power. And so it's like, it's the only way to remove the power is to have more power. And that's how all of the systems that gain power like have have gotten it, is by removing the existing power. The United States became formidable through the world wars that it has won and all of the civil war to replace Europe. Now China is coming up. China is giving value in terms of tech. They still definitely have the military to defend themselves. But if they grow so big enough that they want to displace the U.S., they need to have the muscle to do that. Otherwise, it will be like, I don't I don't see how they can do it. So or just unfortunately, that's like human beings for us. Now, how, how, how we change this, as, like, I, like, I honestly don't know. I mean, I would wish that the situation was where it was easy to just convince this muscle to say, okay, like, there's something you can benefit from helping everybody, including the working class and those undergraduates. And then we can't even talk about the problem of overpopulation explosion. Like, poor people are the ones who are more uh, prolific in terms of giving birth. So who is there to talk about the you know birth control measures that people who are, don't have means should practice so that there's enough resource the, the resources that are available on on low hanging fruits can be such that it's enough that people are not living in poverty because the the top dogs will you know like very few people will jump into the billionaire class but people will jump in there but you have to create uh create value to majority of people plus be beneficial to the government otherwise they will not they they won't care about you so it's like how how do we penetrate the system that's the challenge because like the, the systems like all of the guys that, that are billionaires today are not just billionaires for nothing they're m- most of the systems that run that secure them that make this all of all of the things that we're looking at technology today they're powered by these guys so if you come and say tomorrow oh i want to take away who bezos like are you are you going to crush all the aws servers are you going to like what, what are you going to do if you want to break it down all of all of the people that they have lobbied in government who have been well paid all of the top executives who are well paid, like they're not going to listen to you. They have the best lawyers in, uh, you know, in their coffers. So if you want to go legally, they're you know well fortified. If you want to go militarily, they're well fortified. Like what angle can they be attacked? So it's like for me, like the the, the best way I see it is for more young people to be involved in thinking of how to build companies, get investment and get rich. So at least you have um you ha- you have a more base, you have more resources. If you're thinking about making a movement, you can fund it. If you're thinking about solving problems that are dear to you, you have the means to um 
you have the means to attack those problems because it's a it's a big system that it's not going to they're not going to listen to placards or nothing like if if the working class goes against the government they can't win like they don't even need foot soldiers anymore just send drones on manned aircrafts to sweep out whatever is the problem so like what are we fighting are you essentially suggesting that if the people were to rise up against the government, that they can't the win. government... I am not inclined to accept that. If they call so themselves and they call themselves the government of the people, are they seriously going to be attacking their people in the street? They don't want the system. No. I mean, Donald Trump attempted to do something like that, but yeah. he never won. Exactly. Because the system is very robust enough to prevent such a thing from happening, exactly. in my own and the CIA Suck. will know, like, so, like, no uprising can even work without a solid communications. But all communications is being held by security agencies. Like, we're talking on the platform that's definitely monitored by security agencies. If we start planning anything crazy, you'll be funny what next will happen. Because well, the CIA has a hold on every communications network, right? So, like, how do you organize as a food soldier that is fighting the government like they will find out so let's say so where are you then gonna get the tools to fight the government the government owns the most sophisticated weapons they own the marines they have the air force they have the navy seals like what do you what does the civilian have so they have the power of the masses do they not because they are the one that voted the government in so if you if you're a believer in the democratic system, but they're not that people... organized. It's the organization, like are the masses in one accord to go fight the government? Who are the masses? Like are, how many masses are sitting how many of the masses are sitting down and saying they're worried about the government? People are out there, you know, going to cinemas, going to strip clubs, listening to hip hop, you know, watching Netflix. Like where the where all of the masses who have a problem with the government? I, I don't know where you are, and I, I mean, but do you not sense that there is a growing movement of people seeing that or have come to realize that the current system is not working? And they are, there is a huge amount of discontent among those people. And if that growing discontent continues to grow, is that not sufficient enough to bring about the needed change? Really? Or I, I, think, I think it's, so this is, this is what partisan politics has done has separated people people are not like democrats the enemy is the republicans right the republicans the enemy is the democrats no there is no but there there is no huge force that's sitting together and saying the problem is the government no it's this group of people are saying these republicans are the problem republicans are sitting in one group and saying democrats are the problem like it's not the unified force against the government Like, it's still business as usual. And that is why the partisan politics will always continue, because the government will keep you preoccupied. Like, like how... There's, there's no force that's sitting down together and saying, I am one single... of Like, how would you grow to fight the government? Like, peop, like independents uh, are the smallest political group. Like, any, anybody who's coming as a... As as a political leader, like an independent political party, like you cannot win in the U.S. Right, so it's like there's partisan politics. the The government is not the common enemy, in the eye of 
majority of the citizens. And I, I don't even wish that's the case because then if there's a civil war, like it's it now becomes a crazy scenario. It's now survival of the fittest for real. So like people not like majority of people guaranteed are not are not in in serious problems with the government. Like people are living like people are living day to day not really worried about some of these things. There's, there's a few of us who are probably even thinking about these things that take them to talk. A lot of people are just living life with what's available. Yes, I understand, but people yeah. are leaving this life because the media has told them that exactly. that's the question they could get. Exactly. And who controls the media? These people, exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, exactly. I understand that. The monopoly is great. But, I mean, if people are showed option, a better option, do you not think they would go for it? But, but the moment sure. they control that's right. So, so I think that's the problem we face because lots of people have been told that things cannot get any better. This is a situation that you've been subjected to. There's, there's nothing like there's no social mobility. I mean, that's the point that Kofu brought up earlier on about. Yeah. I think I don't know if it's Kofu, which means like people, some people get to reach a position and then obviously, um, um, sorry, he was saying that people who are born rich sort of like stay the position they are because their parents would always lift them up, and those who are born poor. They cannot get. They cannot sort of like advance. You do have a bit of social mobility, but that's very, very minimal. Yeah, it's not compared to what it should be. Yeah, so you would always the situation. So um, even I, I, I heard you talking about the fact that certain people can get rich, but what I've actually noticed is that once those people like richness is kind of like a it's so right. infection. You it's you get you 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 face different problems. You see, like the solution of one problem gives birth. To another more complicated problem, usually, like yeah. when when people are at a certain financial level, there is there are problems that they face. When you get to a different financial level, there's a new set of problems, right? That's right. A business yeah. a business owner is now going to be faced with probably figuring out how can I solve litigations against me? How can I do, handle payroll? How can I deal with you know paying taxes? All of the benefits for my workers. It's a whole different problem set. Like they're not yeah. even thinking about problems that happens on the rat race. So at, at that point, like you see them as also, they, they have a different they set of problems. Become, they also right. become right because I mean that's what the, that's what put them in the that's what put them in the uh, the other race uh, you know in the first place is profit. So that that never gets satiated. Like if you have like growth, like growth has no cap. Right. If if your objective is to build a business that grows, like you like you're looking, they're probably looking at leaders. How can I be the next Amazon? How can I be the next Net Netflix? How can I be the next Uber? How can I be the next? Uh, because this companies, none of these companies last forever. Like as a matter of fact, like fifty percent of these Fortune companies have been replaced in the last ten years by young people who have created a new startup that ripped, that took their market share. So. Like you have young dreamers who are jumping into this game and thinking big and trying to get the market. And that is the focus. So a company, you know, a company that, that is aiming to become a fortune company, if they've made a couple hundred million dollars, which is a win, like, which is a win. A company that, that's value of $500 million is a huge win, but that's probably not their target. They're trying to become a unicorn. They're trying to become a decacorn. And so that is that is what they look at. Those are their problems. And so, 
if the thing is, this is the system we're born with. Like, if we, like, if I, if I just look at it and think, do I think I can, with the time allotted to me, with how much I have to exist as a human being, if, if life extension is not achieved, like, what time do I have to garner um, people to fight the system versus garner people to become a company and solve a solution and earn from it. Like, which path is more feasible to an individual based on the resources that you have? Like, what would you use your resources to do? Because these are two problems. Any, any, you can choose anyone to solve. So which, which risk am I willing to take? Fight the United States government and capitalism or own a company and get capital? Which is a pro- which is a problem that is more feasible to solve? Well, the two are not mutually exclusive, though, are they? They can't because if you're a capitalist and you're trying to form a company, then you're 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 adding to the system. You're no, no, you, from the system, but, right? So you're not fighting most, the system. Most people acknowledge, for example, in the African context, mm-hmm. that you have some degree of capitalism for a period of time. And then you create the institutions that are necessary before you can bring about the um, socialist, socialism change that is needed. So people, are, I mean, you would have to be stupid to, to, to suggest that Africa would simply implement um, a system of socialism or communism tomorrow. Because we just haven't got the, the capital. There's not enough capital there to do it. So you, know, you need to encourage people to set up businesses. And then you need to get revenue. The, the, the state needs to develop um, to to an extent where they can actually get buy out those businesses again. So I mean, you you first need to get the people investing and um, people like minded people, right? Right. Good. That's right. So once all those investment in the state is is probably sort of like self sufficient, then you can bring about certain things. And in the context of America, I mean, I understand that you're not going to overnight bring. Um, about a change, a socialist system in America, right? Mm-hmm. But if, if you, um, but the people can actually work towards a system like the one you, you've alluded to on many occasions, but they cannot see such a system as the final goal. That's what lots of people are arguing about. So people are not actually, like me, for example, I'm not saying that these changes can come about overnight, that it can come by violent means. I'm not in support of that. I'm in support of a system whereby some degree of change is brought, um, is, is brought about. However, we need to be aware of the fact that that's not the end goal. Because if you say that's the end goal, you'll be like the United Kingdom today. Because the United Kingdom at the moment, it has some kind of um, social democratic system, right? Where you have the government providing lots of um, social support and um, uh, having social programs, right? Mm-hmm. So you have... Um, you have a, um, free medication for people who are less fortunate, people who are elderly, right? You have yeah. the NHS, which is not like um, the United States system, so whereby everyone can receive medical treatment if they so wish. So those are all good social programs, but these programs are falling apart because you, ha- you still have a system of capitalism, which is why at the moment they're seeking to run down the NHS, for example, which is National Health Service, so as to make it look like it cannot be run pri- um, by, the, by the state, it has to be privatized. So 
So you can see what's happening. So they, they, they're giving us the impression that the system is not working and the capitalists are coming about and saying, oh, we can take over, we can do a better job than what you're doing. And before you notice, all of the system have been privatized by private individuals because they, they have a vested interest in demonstrating that any system of socialism will not work. So they'll try to undermine it. So um, unless, unless the people have an end goal, they are thinking about a particular end goal and not be comfortable with, a, with such a system. You understand? I, I, I don't think it would help the future generation. The future generation are likely to face the same challenges that we are faced with. So yeah. you need to, so that, that's my position basically. I don't believe, I don't believe this um, democratic socialist system because in your case, you sort of believe that we can still have um, the means of production being controlled by, the, by private individuals. Yes, in the short term, but in the long term, I don't, it will be, the, we will get back into the same problem we're currently faced with. So that is my position. That's where we both differ. But I'm not, I'm not a believer in the fact that this system can come about instantly overnight. I believe that it's a process and you have to allow it to take place over a period of time. You understand? Yeah. But based on my current position, I've seen that it doesn't actually work. <laughs> it's, it's a system that is completely flawed. And you mean, um, you mean capitalism, right? The capitalism system, correct? Yes. But when so you say it doesn't work, what do you what What is the primary objective? So, like, if an if an economic system is set to work, what should it achieve? I mean, it it should achieve equal opportunities for. All the, its people, not just for the few, right? Equal opportunities for every single breathing human. Yes, as best as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and when you mean <laughs> when you mean opportunities, yeah, when you mean opportunities, like is it opportunities to earn or opportunities to to get rich? And uh, if to get no, rich, no, no, to no, no, what no. amount of money? I mean, the the whole pro the only problem the whole problem we have now at the moment is this desire to get rich. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I believe we live in a society whereby everyone should be able to live a comfortable lifestyle. People should know how we do define that. Because would you say like having been able to afford like you know three square meals for for your for an individual, um, being able to have shelter, um, afford a car, like yeah. how, how would we define this? Well, yeah, everyone should be able to. Um, afford basic living absolutely that's first thing okay. everyone should be able to access medical services yep okay. everyone should be able to access education equally so you should not be disadvantaged in society because of your socioeconomic background so that you and, have and that is across the world right um i mean well it's, I want it to be worldwide because I don't see how it's going to work long-term wise. If, for example, if you have a system of capitalism in the United in Africa, so you have a system of socialism in America, in America, yeah? yeah, and then you have a system of capitalism in Africa, is that going to work? I think it's a system that one should advocate a universal system. But I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, do, I, I, I agree with your goal, though. Like, I think, and, and I think the goal should should be making like so. The expectations should, the calculations should be made like an, in assumptions that we are like twenty, thirty billion. I know we're eight billion today. We should be thinking of how can how can thirty billion people be able to afford a standard living across the board. 
if we're able to solve it for 30 billion, then we're solving for today's problem and also for the problem for the next decade because population is exploding. So, well, I mean, um, the, yeah. the but the capitalists want the population to explode, though, don't do they not? Because, for example, I live here, here yeah. they're facing an yeah, aging crisis, so they want people to walk up to the age of 75 years of age so as to be able to support the pension system. Because if you don't have people working, how are you going to? Because people are living much longer. So if you, if you, unless you change the system completely, right? Mm-hmm. Under this capitalistic system, people are going to, they're going to need more people. So if you reduce the birth rate, how does that help? Because at the moment, you have people living much longer. So it's just going to make life much more difficult for the older people. Because right. most Western European states, and even in the United Kingdom, we have a growing population which are living. And we have this pension crisis because you have to support them. So what you have the government doing at the moment because of this population growth issue, you have people working, their, their pensionable age is increasing. So whereas before it used to be 58, 60, 65, now it's going up to 75 years of age. And so by the time I reach I reach pension age, it's estimated I would have to work up until the age of 79 or 80 before I'd be able to get pension. So you find out that most people are going to be dying in active service, right? Without working and not enjoying anything at all. So that is the consequence of the capitalistic system that we have at the moment. You understand? Because everyone wants to make money. So and for so, example, yeah, yeah okay. I mean, the other example I want to give you, like, for example, we have we, um, people who at the moment, they're living on food bank. Like the popul- the amount of people that are living on food bank has gone up to like 30% since this all, like a few months and this crisis coming up, Ukraine crisis and all the rest of it. So it, on this Christmas period, they said like 30%, um, the food that's going to be thrown away and wasted could feed like half of Africa. That's how much food people threw away. Okay? So that's yeah. all part of the social system. Because people try and hoard and hoard and hoard lots of things which you don't need because of the capitalistic system, because of the greed that exists in yeah. such system. So what, what, what would you say is stifling production of food in Africa? What what is the bottlenecks to having enough food to produce in Africa to feed Africa and well, sustain it? Well, yeah, that, that is, that's a good question, which I'm trying to, lots of this place we've gone to, we try to work out the best way forward and what, what is stopping Africa from, because firstly, they need to get the expertise to actually walk the land to properly cultivate. So at the moment, yes. I don't think Africa... Because Africa is growing, but they're not growing sufficiently enough. So it's intellectual capital is the challenge, not really the money. Yeah. Okay. So, so that is the pro- in the African context, though. I mean, I'm just looking at it from the European context. There's lots mm-hmm. of work that needs to be done in the African because that's what we're discussing today. I think Kofu, Kofu, you were there as well in the other space that I was with um, yeah. L. Oh, for 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 me, it's it's not a straightforward answer. Like I, I usually say, when you take a reductionist uh, perspective to some of these very complex questions, you are only going to tell one side of the story. Yes, we have a manpower problem. Uh, because most of the uh, quote-unquote quality manpower, most of the people who should have been in Africa building our African machines, African machineries and, and systems, you know, that would uh, work uh, in mechanized, large-scale mechanized agriculture, many of them 
are leaving the continent, those who are available on the continent have not been given the right incentives for them to do what they should do. So it, the, the, our problem really is multi-layered. There's, there's a part of the government for me which I, I want to apportion about 70% of our blame to African governments for their ineptitude for their visionlessness and for their directionlessness. And then uh, I want to also apportion about 20% of the blame to, or 20 to 30% of our blame to neocolonialists, people who would want to do everything within their, within uh, uh, everything that is possible just to ensure that Africa continue to beg, just to ensure that Africa, you know, uh, continue to depend on them. And then, of course, our African citizens themselves are, because it pains me a lot that Africans are not asking the right questions. It pains me a lot that Africans worship the same set of individuals who have kept us uh, in the state where we are. Uh, Captain, you are in Nigeria, and I believe you are still in contact with some of your friends who are here in Nigeria. We have an election coming up in next year, and some of the people who are running for these elections are some of the reasons why Nigerians are poor, people who have siphoned monies for a very long time. And you still hear a lot of Nigerians, average Nigerians, you know, singing their praises and wanting to elect, re-elect them into power. So our problem really is, is vast. Right, so right. If, if you oh, ask me, if, if you ask me, our government needs to needs to rise up to the occasion. If government, like I, I used to tell people, if government uh, do, uh, does what it is supposed to do, people will fall in line. It, it took the government, the, the, the central government of China to realize that China is a sleeping giant of Asia. When they did it, the average Chinese fell in, uh, stood up and then started working and started doing well for themselves. It took the government in Singapore to say that uh, people in Singapore will no longer be treated as second class citizens, that people in Singapore will no longer be poor. And then they made investments and and today, Singapore is one of the richest countries in the world per capita, right? So yeah. we need our African leaders. We we see what we don't, what we have right now is something that the UK is losing it. Uh, okay, uh, Japan already has lost it, and that thing is working population people who are they say within the age range of say about fifteen years to uh, to fifty years. If you go to Japan, there's a lot of people in Japan who are seventy, eighty, over a hundred years. And when somebody gets to that age, the person becomes a liability. Just like Cecil have said, you have uh, government who have to take care of them. They have a lot of dependence. So in Africa, we have people who are willing and able to work. There's there's a difference between people who are willing and able to work and and maybe people in the US and UK where you have a lot of jobs, people like immediately after the COVID pandemic, uh, uh, Captain, you are, you are in the US and then uh, uh, Ceci, you are in the UK. You could see that many jobs, many companies were putting out signs begging people to come work. But because people were receiving uh, stipends and subsidies from their government, they were able to sit back at home and not want to do anything. In Nigeria, in Sierra Leone, in Ghana, in Gambia, you have people begging, irrespective of what the risk are. People want to, you know, get engaged in in gainful employment. But those jobs were are not there. People are mm. uh, uh, doing all sorts of mega jobs. See people leaving Africa, but we. I've heard a lot of Africans say that they want to work. Even yourself, Captain, if given the incentive, if if an, if one of our Nigerian governors will just place the right incentives, electricity to ensure that people who are writing their codes will, will, will write their code without power interruptions, that you will have security, that you have all the basic things that you enjoy where you are. I want to believe that you want to come down here in Nigeria. Sure. And then you also meet young minds who, who will join you in what you are doing. Right. Cecil, the same thing for you. If, if the government in your country would, would 
put the right incentives on the ground with the small money that you've, you'll be able to save off over there. You'll be able to come down here, employ like five to ten people to work with you, and you see wealth continue to spread. But what we, what we do here in Africa is we, we get like 0.05% of African population put them in positions of authority and these guys will continue to siphon generational wealth for themselves for their families and the friends of their families and they not just steal for 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 themselves and africa and, and, and the african brothers they yeah. also steal these monies to go and squander them in Absolutely. western countries if they want to make any investment they are investing the money in the uk they are investing the money in dubai and when and when these investments are yielding profits the 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 income tax on this investment are, are, is charged by by you know, country uh, members of of these countries that is not African. So our, our challenges are, are really massive. But I I feel that the best place to start is getting the right people in in positions of authority. It took China to get things right for India to now start getting things right. It took oh. China to get things right for the likes of Cambodia, for the likes of Thailand to start getting things. Right. And that is why I say to Africans that whether you are a Sierra Leonean, whether you are a South African, whether you are a Kenyan, it is important that we 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 get things right in Nigeria. 200 and something million people in one country. By the time Nigeria begins to perform very well, Ghana will become our biggest trading partner. Cameroon will become one of our biggest trading partners. And, and you know, see people in different parts of Africa will wake up, you know, and rise up to the occasion. But if giants like Nigeria, giants like like Congo, giants like Kenya, because these are these are, 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 are regional giants in their own right. If these giants are, are sleeping, if giants like South Africa, in my opinion, they are still sleeping. People who control South Africa are just a tiny fraction of, of the population and they are mostly white people who extract money from South Africa and eventually send those money to places like, like Holland. If If these regional giants wake up, Right, you will see countries, smaller countries that are around them, will rise up to the occasion. If Nigeria does well today, countries in West Africa, like Benin Republic, like Togo, like Liberia, Sierra Leone, they would wake up. They, they would start because it took it took China to do that. And look at Malaysia today. Look at Indonesia. These countries are also one way or the other leveraging on China's industrialization. Look at Bangladesh. We need right. one, just one example. By the time you have plenty terrible examples around you, the, the guy in Abuja is, is messing up. The man in Accra will say, okay, my Abuja brother is messing up. Let me also mess up. If if the guy in Abuja is messing up, the guy in Yaoundé in Cameroon will feel the same way. The people sure. in, in Nigeria that have this kind of population. So we need good neighbors. We need good leadership. We need somebody who will rise up. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not much of a fan of uh, uh, Pokagami, uh, but what he's doing in, in that part of in his own country, uh, people uh, people in other parts of Africa are saying it. People in Nigeria are saying that the guy is doing well, and I believe that other African leaders they will be making comparisons between them and Pokagami, and everybody want to okay be better than Kagame, and that is what I want. Well, this this is sharp. I, I, I'm you know. I apologize, I have to I have to close in three minutes. But these these are very great points, Kufu, you mentioned. Um, and I mean, I, I see like kind of hope, like in in Paul Kagame and even Peter Obi. But I don't know if he's going to win. It's someone like of all of people I think has the vision. Uh, I think it's necessary. But if he doesn't win, you know, somehow like the people we still have to figure out how to work with, you know with whatever is the choice to figure out okay how can we work with what has been available to kind of deal with the challenge 
um, because it's a it's a it's a critical it's a critical condition. And for me, like I try not to make it stress me, because I look at myself. Even though I I kind of want to tie myself to the growth of Africa, I look my, I look at myself as a global citizen, because personally, I'm looking at type two civilization. I'm looking at how can humanity as a whole be able to um explore more space and increase lifespan and increase our our human bandwidth and figure out how we can we can work with the inevitable rise of robots and AI. So when I come when I look at those objectives, I cannot because of where I was born let the setbacks there affect the grand vision. But at the same time I still feel like I'm connected so that wherever uh, progress I'm making on on my main goal it still has to affect africa because i feel like africa and nigeria like these are very very important tools like the the planet itself cannot as as a as a global civilization we cannot progress if africa does not progress like there's no way half of like a portion of the world will progress and we're not we're not doing it as a planet so um at the same time why i have to work with the available tools that i can because at the end of the day the the leading um the leading societies to kind of progress in terms of science and tech is either china um or united states in my opinion so like while we're working with what is existing that can really accelerate growth um we still have to look at uh, uh, how we can contribute to uh to working with nigeria because if 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 nigeria you know tomorrow just does what it does right to be able to attract talent definitely i can i can definitely jump in you know once in a while i don't know if i'll be based there but i would definitely want to work with the young minds there but i've made a lot of progress here already like there's already leading tech here like i don't see where nigeria tomorrow is gonna create the 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 tools with which i can walk in my space um in my space uh startup and stuff like that like i don't see where that can work so I just have to, if if I'm thinking of the growth of, of the ideas that I have and the grand vision, like the United States or China, I still have to work with somehow. You know, the United States is still the, the best option I have. And I have to figure out how to how to also help uh, or work with Africa because, believe it or not, Africa has a lot of potential. But with all of the things that are plaguing it, the bad leadership, the religion, and and what have you, it will take a while to achieve those growth. Um, why? Why we expect it to happen, and and uh, what should happen? Um, I I don't know a better system than capitalism, unfortunately, Cecil. Um, somehow, like this is what's available to change the system will require something that I don't know what step one, step Captain, two, step three Captain, is. Capitalism yeah. for me is still the best system, but right. neoliberal capitalism, capitalism that runs without control, you mm-hmm. know, I, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think we should continue to run in that kind of world order. Right. Totally agree. And like, yeah. I, like, like I've mentioned, I've given examples in different parts of the world that are suffering today as a result of the growth that we've seen in the US, in Europe and in China. So neoliberal capitalism should should be mitigated. We, we shouldn't have one uh, 1% of the population stocking up wealth and putting it in their pockets while every other person is looking for breadcrumbs, you know. And yeah. if, if you continue to have that, what we, what we have is maybe like 0.1% of the population and then you have... 99.9% of people 
poor. If we, if we continue in this trajectory, we are going to have uh, it's going to become worse for humanity. I totally agree. I think there should be more targeted investment. Like it's not like spreading money, but like investing in in especially people that are uh, productive. Like if someone has a great you know vision of building stuff that can help humanity, like having access to capital should not be their problem. So everybody should not have access to capital. There's some people who have access to capital, they're going to blow it on weed and drugs and bullshit. But there are people who have great ideas and have intention to make things work. But the problem is access to capital. Now, increasing their ability to access capital, should def- I totally agree that should be ramped up. And we know the people who suffer it most, like, you know, Forbes list is whitewashed. It needs to be more colorful because there are a lot of great minds um, all around the world that need the resources to build upon their their genius, and um, yeah, this was great uh, great conversation. I have to I have to jump now, but sister, I hope I hope uh, I hope you'll be around for the next uh, the next one and and cool for it, dude. It's been a while. I, I heard from you, but as usual, like great insights. And uh, I'll just do a quick random draw again for the next week, uh, which I've been doing since the previous episodes, um, to know which company we're gonna look at. Um. Next, uh, yeah. Google random number generator, and the one for next week is hundred and thirty-seven. Um, let me see what company that is. Um, hundred and thirty-seven is Al Raji Bank. Wow, interesting! It's a bank in Saudi Arabia. So yeah, never heard of this before. Never been in this. Even I've never researched any company in Saudi Arabia. So I'm very curious as to what revelations I can get from this. But you yeah, are today has been insightful. Learned a lot from what you said, Kufor and Cecil as well. Yeah. Um, hope for uh, the best. Thank you, yeah. well. thank you too. Because um, <laughs> I didn't know you have some program. I, I mean, is I was just passing on. I saw your space. I said, oh, yeah, let me come in and see. So it was quite so, interesting. This, this, this kind of spaces are my favorite spaces where you have just very few individuals, That's you know, uh, share information. You, I, I don't, I hate speaking where you have trolls, where somebody's saying something and people are using distracting emojis. People are, are, are saying something and you have trolls, you know, just like we had that guy come in yesterday and, and make, make it, made a mockery of, you know, some of the opinions that are very intellectual people have to share. So thank you, Captain, for, for giving us the opportunity to join you in this space here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Captain. Yeah, um, also, um, I wanted to discuss something as well that we are actually doing, like you can give an idea because you look like you have a lot of experience in the finance and business industry. So like in the uh, accounting industry so maybe you can actually because you have more expertise because obviously i'm in the legal field so i don't know much about this financial issue but i just know that the current system is not working and i don't think i'm not against capitalism in the short term it's just that in the long term i think that it needs to change and just like kufu indicated i'm right. against capitalism which is causing a major problem and affecting lots of people but um yeah um thank you very much for the time that you spend with us and i've learned a lot and <laughs> we've had a good chat and please notify me if i'm available next time or whenever you have coming back, I'll be more than happy to join with you guys. Um, yeah.
Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate I appreciate both. Yeah, and I'll, I'll keep in touch. I'm more like into tech. I have few, you know, experience with finance, but mainly tech. But, uh, you know, I'm glad to see how we can collaborate. Um, yeah, but I think that's what Africa needs because that's, I mean, this, the problem is I'm speaking to lots of Africans. They're saying, well, okay, well, we've got free education now, <laughs> but we don't have jobs. So, like, yeah, I think tech would work a lot. Yeah, and here and helping our people. Yeah, that's the appreciate way forward, it. I think. Thank you, boss. Take care. Have a good day. Appreciate it, sister. Thank you, Kufor, as well. Uh, see you again soon.